Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm Nabil Biagio in Washington, working on this program via remote. Here are some of the top stories making news across South Sudan and Sudan this Wednesday, January 11, 2023. Some lawmakers in South Sudan say the intercommunal violence in Jongule and the Greater Pibor administrative area could affect the implementation of the country's 2018 peace agreement. It is an issue that the leaders from Pibor and could sit down and, and look into, and also uh, the national leaders uh, who are concerned with security and, and the political uh, issues, uh, they should look into this so that Sweden can be, can be arrested. And an analyst says Sudan's road to peace is rough. There would need to be reforms in the military, the military would be integrated into a single unified command and would serve as a professional military, but there would be justice for abuses that the regime has committed since we will have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. Some lawmakers in South Sudan's Transitional National Legislative Assembly say they are concerned about the escalating intercommunal fighting in Jongule and the Greater Pibor Administrative Area and are calling on national leaders to intervene. The MPs say the violence threatens national security and the implementation of the revitalized peace agreement. For VOA News, Deng Gaideng has the story from Bor. MP Mayen Deng Alier, who represents Jonglei State in the Transitional National Legislative Assembly, says the number of lives lost following several days of fighting in Pibor and Jonglei is shocking. Other than it being a tribal issue between the Mongolian community and, and the people of Mongolian uh, nation from Jonglei State, uh, we should see if the other motives other than the revenge attack and all these kind of things. So it is an issue that the leaders from the board and delivery and could sit down and, and look into. And also uh, the national leaders uh, who are concerned with security sector and the political uh, issues, uh, they should look into this so that the situation can be, can be arrested. The latest wave of violence began two weeks ago when a group of armed militia men known as the White Army from neighboring Jonglei state attacked parts of Greater Pibor administrative area. Local authorities say the perpetrators killed dozens of people, burned homes, stole livestock and caused tens of thousands of families to be displaced from their homes. Aliar says President Salva Kiri should question Lokalia mayor the chief administrator of Greater Pibor and Jongle Governor Dinei Chagur as to why they have done little to control armed groups from attacking their neighbors. The major aspect now is the issue of cattle wrestling. What policies can be introduced uh, uh, to avoid uh, the occurrence of some people going and, uh, you know, uh, taking property that belongs to other people and in the process and damaging both lives and property. So it is an issue that is uh, threatening uh, the national security in the country. Alier says if parliament were not in recess, the caterates and greater people would be a top agenda item. MP Helen Ngaidok, who represents Gumru County in the National Legislative Assembly, says she is deeply concerned about the violence in her area. I also have families there, I have relatives, like and in this conflict, 
um, my people are the ones suffering the most. Yeah, if it continues, of course, then the consequences will be both long term and also short term. The short the short term ones will be destruction and, and loss of life, as it is already happening. And the long term one, of course, we will have trauma, for, especially for those who are affected. And there's also going to be poverty because, you know, in a conflict, of course, like people will lose property, will also lose cattle, which is their main source of income. There will also be destruction of structures whereby some of the people who are affected will have no shelters, they will have no clothing. So it's a disaster by itself. Nidoc says parties to the peace deal are at the final pace of implementing the agreement, but the fighting in Pibor could derail security arrangements and cause a further displacement. The South Sudan People's Defense Force says the attacks and counterattacks by arms groups in the greater Pibor and Jongle have overwhelmed the army. Military spokesperson Major General Lul Rai Kong says four of the soldiers were killed recently in Jongle State. The white arm from Greater Jongle invaded uh, Greater Pibor in thousands. We could not intervene in every front. We only uh, fought back the South Defense. If you could remember, Wien Gumruk was repeatedly attacked, and that was the only thing that we could do. The same thing in uh, Jongle now. A lot of attacks are being reported all over in Duke County, of, uh, of Duke, uh, in, in Paijut, in uh, Uror, in Nirol, in Akobo. And we do not have presence in all the, some of the villages that are being attacked. General Kong says the army was only able to intervene when cattle raiders left stolen livestock near their military barracks. In a joint statement released two weeks ago, UNMIS, the African Union, EGAD, the Troika, the European Union and RJ make all called on South Sudanese leaders to urgently intervene to stop the fighting in Pibor. They also called on South Sudanese leaders to ensure the safety and security of civilians as well as unimpeded humanitarian access to people affected by the fighting. For VOA News, I am Deng Guiding in Bor. The humanitarian coordinator in South Sudan has strongly condemned the killing of three aid workers in South Sudan in Ramamer village in the Abiei administrative area and in Duke County of Jongole State. Peter van der Orard called on authorities and communities to protect humanitarian personnel as they deliver assistance to vulnerable people. He extended condolences to the families and colleagues of the aid workers who were killed. He said, quote, humanitarians are working tirelessly to serve the most vulnerable people, including women and children and the elderly with vital humanitarian assistance and attacks against them are completely unacceptable and must stop, end quote. Van der Orard says the humanitarian community is calling on authorities to bring the perpetrators to justice. South Sudan continues to be one of the most dangerous places for aid workers. Nine humanitarian workers have been killed in the line of duty in 2022 compared to five in 2021. Since the conflict began in 2013, 141 humanitarians, predominantly South Sudanese, have lost their lives while providing humanitarian assistance. 
The Sudanese civil forces signatories to the framework agreement announced the start of the final phase of the political process in the country on Sunday, with the participation of representatives from the European Union, the Troika, which includes the United States, Britain and Norway, and ambassadors of Arabs and Western countries. The president of the Sovereignty Council in Sudan, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and his deputy, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalu, also known as Hemeti, renewed the pledge to withdraw the army from politics and to hand over the leadership of the next phase to civilians under the agreement reached between the military and civilian components. VOA senior analyst Mohammed Shinawi discussed the potential of the agreement with Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies. There are competing narratives about what's going on. On the one hand, there are indeed substantive negotiations between the military and civilian leaders on moving forward with a transition process, a transition process that would entail a democratic civilian-led government. And, you know, as part of this discussion, uh, the military has agreed that it would be subordinate to civilian leader during the transition process and that there would need to be reforms in the military, that the military would be integrated into a single unified command and would serve as a professional military, that there would be justice for abuses that the regime has committed since 1989, uh, the military would have to give up its private businesses, and, and that there would be a new constitution-making processes. So there have been some substantive very explicit reforms that have been put on the table and, and that are being openly discussed. And so that's a very encouraging development in Sudan. At the same time, there's another narrative that the military is simply playing along in this discussion, and it builds on the military's reputation for repeatedly balking at supporting a genuine transition in Sudan. And repeatedly, we have seen the military put forward proposals of a civilian-led technocratic government, but this government would in fact be uh, beholden to the military. So there are valid reasons for skepticism. Nonetheless, the fact that we're seeing this substantive dialogue between military and civilian leaders is a positive sign. On her part, the representative of the civilian forces that signed the framework agreement said that the agreement distances the military's institution from politics and emphasizes justice. And she called on the rest of the civilian components to join the political process. Would the other civilian components join this process? Many of the main civilian organizations have already joined the process, and most of the others that haven't are at least participating in these discussions. And so the call to expand the other participants is an effort to broaden the coalition of civilian participation so that any ultimate agreement will be widely supported and, and will be robust through the transition process. Now, there are several armed opposition groups who have previously made deals with the military and they have declined to support the framework agreement. There are efforts to continue to engage them and to see if they can come along to the process as well. But overall, there is a you know, substantial level of support and engagement by the various civilian actors in Sudan. You know, all of this is tempered by a you know, healthy dose of, dose of skepticism about the commitment of the military to follow through with the transition. But, but they are engaging in, in the dialogue. That's Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, is speaking to VOA Senior Analyst Mohammed Ashinawi. 
You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, China's diplomacy in Africa picks up. Find out why. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today. What is the best advice you have ever gotten? Got an advice from my mom. She encouraged me to work hard. That she told me and a very successful woman is a very hardworking woman. The great one I can remember is the one my father gave to me to study hard. Actually, he was on his, I can say, maybe a deathbed. He was so ill. He had stroke and he was so helpless. He couldn't do anything for me. That was the last day I even saw him. He was like, my son, study hard. Is from my father. Um, he, he has always told me that um, I shouldn't be afraid to learn new things and to take up new challenges because he said that you're only afraid to take up new challenges when you haven't tried it. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. China's new foreign minister, Ken Kang, has begun a five-nation tour of Africa aimed at bolstering Chinese-African ties. Ken, who had been ambassador to the U.S. until December, will visit African Union headquarters in Ethiopia before traveling to Gabon, Angola, Benin, and Egypt. Analysts say trade and investment are the top priorities for both sides as China and the U.S. compete for influence in Africa. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's African News Center in Nairobi. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed welcomed Shingang to Addis Ababa as a Chinese foreign minister began his week-long tour. After visiting African Union headquarters Tuesday, the Chinese foreign minister will go to Angola, Benin, Egypt and Gabon. David Munyai is the head of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He offers some insight into what Shingang and his hosts will discuss. At AU level, there might be some uh, issues in terms of um, requests by Africans for China to help on the issues of reform of the United Nations. Um, the AU itself is going to get a seat within G20. And then number of other uh, issues within multilateral institutions and China is a permanent member of Security Council. China's investment in Africa is focused on infrastructure and telecommunications according to the Chinese General Administration of Customs in the first three months of 2022 trade between China and Africa reached nearly 65 billion a 23% increase from the same period in 2021. Cliff Mboya is a researcher at the afro Center of International Relations. He says economic revival will be at the top of most African countries' agenda. What I expect him to address is uh, China-Africa relations post-COVID. You know, uh, we know that China is uh, gradually opening up uh, to the rest of the world, and they're trying to embrace the post-COVID world, which some of us have already. So economic recovery will be key. And you must factor in the fact that there's a lot of renewed interest coming from the U.S. and Europe. So China will want to 
put its stake uh, in the relationship and just affirm African countries that uh, it is here to stay and just to build on uh, what it has. Western nations have accused China of using massive loans for infrastructure projects to put African countries in debt to Beijing, both politically and economically. Rice groups say China also promotes corruption and ignores human rights concerns while seeking access to Africa's natural resources. Munyao says Africa are to blame for the corruption involving big projects in the continent. My blame goes more on Africans, ourselves as Africans. I don't think we have clear laws and, and tough on corruption. The idea of blaming Chinese or blaming Americans on anything is not something that I buy into. There are issues, no doubt. Is there corruption in some of Chinese projects? Yes. Is there any corruption in some of American projects on Africa? Yes. How are we? What are we doing? And there is no one that we can say is better than the other. That's my that's my own view. Last month, the U.S. government hosted African leaders in Washington, where they agreed to support infrastructure projects on the continent, as well as invest in digital transformation, health, and telecommunications. Boya says African nations will see if they can get similar or greater benefits from interaction with Xinjiang and China. So he'll be received well and the African leaders will begin to see what has to offer uh, when it comes to its trip. So this trip, I know it will generate a lot of interest. Uh, the African Union, the leaders who are there, they will want to establish the personal contact with him just to get an idea of his ideas and his, his strategy and see how to align themselves uh, with what uh, he'll have to say or what China intends to do going forward. In Egypt, the foreign minister is scheduled to meet with the Secretary General of the Arab League. The visit is set to conclude Saturday. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Ghana has one of the most thriving podcast industries on the continent, with many local content creators producing a variety of shows covering a range of topics. One of the most popular podcasts in Ghana is Sincerely Accra, an award-winning podcast that features conversations on the lives of young urban residents living in the capital, Accra. On his recent trip to Ghana, my colleague Jackson Vugani visited the Gold Coast Report studio, where the show is recorded and produced and met with the creators of the podcast. It's a hot Sunday afternoon in a neighborhood located a few meters from the Atlantic Ocean. I made plans to meet up with two young Ghanaian creatives. Joseph Nti is the host of Sincerely Accra, a popular podcast among young Ghanaians in Accra and outside. We are also joined by Donald, the co-founder of Gold Coast Report. It's a podcast network that hosts Sincerely Accra and other forms of audio content. I asked both of them to join me for a ride in one of Ghana's most popular forms of public transportation. It's hot. It's hot. hot. So this 
No Essie, right? No. <laughs> we pay extra for the Essie. Nice. We are in a trotro. This is a part of a local public transportation here in Accra, Ghana. Uh, I'm with Joseph and Donald, uh, both of them podcasters, creatives uh, in the media space here, cultural space, uh, the movers and the shakers of things, you know, the new young generation of Canadians. So this, what we're sitting in right now is a trotro. It's the main mode of transportation for most people living here in Accra. Um, there are two ways to get onto a trotro. You can go to the station where it's stationary and then you, you know, you load it, like load it. They wait for the whole thing to be full before it moves or you wait at the different bus stops because what happens is when people get off the space and then you get on and each trotro has its demarcated area that it's going to. Ooh. So you need to know where you're going and where to stand to get the trotro that's going where you're going. Now, do, it, does each trotro have its own character per se? In the way, in the artwork, in the music it plays. Because I've seen many, you know, African urban centers. They have these, uh, you know, means of transportation, and they try to one up each other by being different, by being creative. Yeah, is I it mean, in they do something? I think so. I think honestly, the personalities of the drivers also come to play. Like you can see, we have a little Burberry situation going on yeah. here. Drivers like to have signs at the back of their trotros. I know you've seen they have all sorts of quotes. I don't know what inspires the quotes. Um, some of them have like uh, televisions inside and a lot of design. So I think the personality of the drivers really like shows inside the trotro. Okay. Tell us about Cecilia Accra. Sincerely Accra is Accra's love letter to the world. It's the pulse of the nation. The podcast um, runs on Fox Pops and interviews with pe- people of interest, you know. Um, we started it in 2017 to get into conversations that are plaguing young people here in Accra. All sorts of things, you know, nothing is off limits on Sincerely Accra because it's the everyday conversations that we're having with our friends and our when we go out to drink and we just take those conversations and put them on the podcast and you know you throw in a few popular sound bites and my crazy opinion and you have sincerely a crowd uh, what are some of the most popular topics you've had so far? The most popular subject matter on Cecilia Accra is definitely sex. You know, Ghanaians are a nation of sex habits, but they just do not like to talk about it. So when you throw in, you know, the whole anonymity, because when we do the Vox Box, we don't know names, and it's also an audio platform, so they are more willing to talk about it. They see everything, you know. It's a taboo um, topic, still it's a taboo it, topic it is, in public. Is, yes, how people have it, who they have it with, it's just a taboo topic. Yeah. Um, another thing would definitely be relationships and dating, because that's also closely tied into sex and then I would say the third third thing is money you know salaries we've spoken about fresh graduate salaries how to manage in the economic stress that we're currently in this year so like money relationships dating and sex so how did you start into podcasting Okay, so there's always two things, okay. Um, the GCR network, that's the Gold Coast Report, that's the network that we're assigned to. Mm. Um, I got invited to speak on a podcast. And we have uh, the GCR guru right here yeah. behind us, Donald. Yeah, Donald invited me to speak on a podcast that they had called Free Your Mind. Um, and before then, I had just listened to Serial, you know, the podcast with, um, I think, um, Adnan Saeed. He was wrongfully accused of murder. Yeah, I just finished listening to it, and I liked the idea of a podcast. So I was talking with my producer and co-creator, Kwame, about how podcasting is cool. We should get into it. Because honestly, we got to know uh, each other through creative means, you know. Um, and I got invited on uh, Free Your Mind. And so I went, I said, Kwame, listen, these guys are set up. I think we can write a proposal and get our podcast started. And that's what we did. They loved the idea. And yeah, five years down the line, Tell your cries, then I'm on podcasting, Ghana. Mm. 
Jonah, we, we did speak to you a little bit uh, earlier this week about podcasting in general. What is it about Cecilia Accra uh, that is appealing to your demographic? Yeah, I think I think Cecilia Accra, what it does very well is capture the heart and soul of you know the everyday life of people of Accra. And I think Joseph does an amazing job of you know his delivery is like one of the selling points of the show, honestly. And of course, you know you couple that with the amazing job of you know the brand Kwame Asante, the producer of the show. Shout out to Kwame. Yes, it's on the show as well. You put those two elements together, and you have you know definitely one of the magic. You have magic. magic. Yeah. Yeah. Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, says Iran's executions of anti-government protesters in violation of international human rights law amount to state-sanctioned killings. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. Over the past month, Iran has executed four young men who had engaged in recent demonstrations. The death sentences were imposed following convictions on vague charges, such as waging war against God and corruption on earth. The UN High Commissioner spokeswoman Ravina Shandasani says those charges are completely spurious and make no sense. She says they also fall far short of international human rights law, which only permit executions for the most serious offenses, such as intentional killing. In these cases, however, given an almost complete lack of due process, um, given the use of torture and ill-treatment, we are saying that these are not only executions, but these are actually state-sanctioned killings. They are arbitrary deprivations of life by the state. Shandasani says the men were all denied their right to a fair trial and access to a lawyer of choice. She says they reportedly made confessions to crimes that were forced and obtained through torture and ill-treatment. She says they also were denied a meaningful right to appeal against conviction. Criminal proceedings and the death penalty are being weaponized by the Iranian government to punish individuals participating in protests and to strike fear into the population to stamp out dissent in violation of international human rights law. Thousands of people have been detained and at least 480 reportedly killed since nationwide protests erupted in September. The protests followed the death of a young Iranian Kurdish woman, Masa Amini. She was arrested by the so-called morality police for improperly wearing her hijab and died a few days later while in police custody. Iranian authorities say she had a heart attack. Her family says she had no history of heart trouble. Shamdasani says at least 17 other individuals reportedly have been sentenced to death and up to 100 more face charges for capital crimes. She says her office has received information that the executions of two young men aged 19 and 22 are imminent. High Commissioner Volker Turk is calling on the government of Iran to impose an immediate moratorium on the death penalty and halt all executions. He urges the government to respect the lives of his people, to listen to their grievances and undertake legal and policy reforms. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. And that's all we prepared for you this Wednesday.
Don't forget to check out voaafrica.com for all your favorite programs and news updates. If you miss this broadcast, go to www.voaafrica.com forward slash South Sudan. We now leave you with Addison Arcangelo and the song Hakuma Kabasu Yunobin. and the song Hakuma Kabasu Yunubin. I'm your host, Nabil Biagio, in Washington. Thanks for taking the time to be 